HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Food and travel. They go hand in hand. And chances are, if you're a fan of Heritage Radio Network, you love them both. Between April 10th and 24th, we have six incredible food and travel experiences up for auction at CharityBuzz.com. Go on an underground food tour of New Orleans with a rocket scientist. Get your hands on VIP passes to Feast Portland or enjoy a ranch-to-table experience in wine country. Four of the experiences include hotel stays at some of the most iconic properties across the country, including the newly reopened Hotel Claremont in Atlanta. Now's your chance to win the ultimate bourbon and beyond weekend in Lexington or take in a Latin food tour of New York's outer boroughs. You'll eat, drink, explore, and relax, all while supporting Heritage Radio Network. Help us keep the lights on and the mics hot. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash auction and bid now. Oh, yes, it is Monday. This is the Heritage Radio Network, and this program is called What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we're going to talk about trade and tariffs today. Um, my guest is Michael Stumo. He is the CEO of the Coalition for a Prosperous America. He works closely and regularly with congressional offices on both sides of the aisle to educate political media and business leaders on issues including trade imbalances, trade enforcement, tax reform, agricultural trade, manufacturing policies, and more. He has written on trade policy and tax and economics for The Hill. For Breitbart, The American Prospect, Global Trade Magazine, and others. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, first, let's uh, thank you. I appreciate that. And um, and tell us first of all, what is the Coalition for a Prosperous America? We're a unique organization. We're a coalition of agriculture, manufacturing, and organized labor. We are uh, cover the left to the right of the spectrum, from the Tea Party right to the labor union left. We've uh-huh. had Bernie supporters and Hillary and Trump supporters in our group, and we've been around for about 10 years. We're focused on the trade deficit, the offshoring of American industry and agriculture, right. and want to balance trade. 
Okay, so let's talk about balancing trade. So the way that the Trump administration is proposing to balance trade at the moment is uh, to de- uh, develop some tariffs against China, um, which uh, I'm wondering how you feel those are going to play out for your agricultural sector. Sure. Well, the China tariffs are based on technology theft by China of our intellectual property. Right. Uh, They're not designed necessarily to balance trade with China, which is a big problem. They are nearly half of our trade deficit. So China has used, doesn't let companies uh, sell there unless you move there. You can't move your facilities there unless you joint venture with a government-owned company. And then they take your technology and you've got about three or four years of sales before your IP is out in the wild and they basically uh, marginalize you out of the market. So that's what the basis of those are. But as far as agriculture, with uh, to the extent we are a net exporter, like in soybeans, corn, and wheat. Yeah. uh, So certainly we have seen, uh, you know, the markets drop in the short term. We saw that in the stock market, too. The stock market comes back based upon whether corporate earnings are, you know, solid. Yeah. And so the the short-term noise tends to go away. I'm hoping it'll go away with agriculture because uh, in when you have a fungible commodity like soybeans or corn, if someone sells more into one market, then, then someone else sells where they used to sell. So if China were to cut back, which they haven't, uh, and Brazil filled it, then we would fill where Brazil did, because it's a global market with global supply and demand. It's not the mm-hmm. bilateral noise usually doesn't govern. But but isn't China is our third largest trading partner, is what I read. And they also own a lot of debt from America. And so when we talk about, um, you know, imposing uh, first a $60 billion trade, uh, tariff, and then now uh, even escalating to a hundred billion dollar trade, and that includes tariffs on things like, um, well, the Chinese are retaliating with tariffs on things like beef and pork and soy that we sell a lot of to them. So doesn't doesn't this all mean that American agriculture is going to take a hit? I yeah, mean, I, I totally get that. On the front line, and uh, we've been urging the administration to get very aggressive about protecting our farmers. Yeah. Uh, the trade with China is very unbalanced. They sell $387 billion more to us than we do them. Right. And oddly enough, we, we're sort of a third-world colony uh, economic position to them in that we, sell, we have a $24 billion surplus in commodities. That's agriculture, mining, and energy uh-huh. commodities to them. But they have a $400 billion surplus with us and manufactured goods, which is kind of like Britain relationship with Africa, the subcontinent of India, mm-hmm. and North America in the imperial days where Britain would import the commodities, add value, and sell manufactured goods to everybody else. So that's, uh, you know, that's not the kind of trade picture we want uh, with, with China. That does not mean we don't want to be, you know, exporting our oversupply, but uh, I'm hoping that the soy and corn markets come back to fundamentals, like how much global demand is there, how much global supply, and there's too much oversupply. For pork and beef, we're a net importer. The big problem there right. is allowing too much uh, low-quality imports from countries like Mexico and Brazil. Yeah. 
Um, well, particularly Brazil. I mean, they've had a lot right. of scandal recently, uh, both with tainted food, tainted beef, and with their, um, with the whole JBS, um, <laughs> the, the Baptista family, uh, all going basically to jail apparently for, <laughs> for um, you know, racketeering and yeah. Well, tax look up evasion. Operation Car Wash, and you'll see the biggest corruption investigation in history, which JBS is a part of. Ah. And as of today, it was announced that another. Brazilian meatpacking firm Marfrig yes. is buying national beef. Yes, and I so saw that. Mar- JBS is the biggest beef processor in the world. Marfrig will be number two, and they control our markets. Whoa. You know, I didn't realize that Marfrig was that, uh, sorry, that uh, national. First of all, why is that happening? What, now, why wouldn't that be the subject of an antitrust suit um, to have an American company be acquired by a Brazilian company? I mean, I don't know why they didn't stop the Smithfield sale. I don't know why they don't. They didn't stop uh, JBS from acquiring, say, Pilgrim's Pride. And I forget what other big beef packer they absorbed, but they did that too. And this was sort of like, I don't know, that was in the 90s, I guess. But wh- why do you think antitrust uh, legislation does, is not brought to bear, or at least scrutiny is not brought to bear on these, right. these big acquisitions? Well, that used to be my, uh, my bailiwick. Uh, yeah, right. Antitrust. I helped litigate a case against Tyson in 2004 uh-huh. uh, for price fixing in, in cattle. And uh, over an eight-year period, we won at the jury trial level in Alabama and got a $1.8 billion verdict with mm. the appellate court over Ruled it. You also missed one, a big one. The Chinese bought Smithfield Foods. Yeah, I said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I did say that. Yeah. Well, that's what got me interested uh, in that part of, you know, sort of the whole, um, you know, monopolization and concentration of the meat industry, about which I should tell you that I wrote a book. So I am not a completely, um, um, you know, a a, a tyro when it comes to this stuff. But, um, you know, I've, I've just been very curious about sort of and very concerned from a food security aspect of uh, like what the implications are down the road of you know it's the same thing as letting uh, Monsanto and Bayer merge you know what i mean when you have other or 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 even worse Syngenta and ChemChina where you have two foreign companies that are then you know developing technology that has an impact on american agriculture right. i mean so i find the these all very question is worrying. whether they have enough market power to adversely affect the market and consumers mm-hmm. the problem with antitrust is there's so much pr- focus on protecting consumers, that in the case of agribusiness, where the harm is to the farmers and the ranchers, they're not consumers. So the judges are trying to ignore harm to farmers and and ranchers uh, because they focus on consumer harm. Whether a foreign company or a domestic company owns, you know, uh, a business here, antitrust is agnostic on that, Uh unfortunately. But we do have the committee, uh, we do have some regulation of foreign investment here, something called the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., yeah. which is some legislation to strengthen. But that's just on national security grounds. It's not on antitrust grounds, and it's right. unfortunately not on economic security grounds. So, so far, it's been hard to stop uh, China buying Smithfield, for example. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that got some pushback, but uh, not as <laughs> nowhere near as much as I would have put. I mean, they own one in four hogs in the United States. I consider that really unfortunate because that one in four hogs means they're eating that much American corn and soy and drinking that much American water and polluting that much American, you know, soil and streams. 
So Right, and now they control the National Pork Producers Council, which is yeah. the top pork lobbyist in the country, so it's infiltration at the political level, too. Right, right. Oh, this is so interesting, Michael. You're not at all what I thought you would be like. So let's let's go back to the tariffs for a second. So I think you mentioned the fact that we're trying to protect um, you know, intellectual property. property. And I, I certainly think that most Americans would agree that that was a desirable uh, goal. But are tariffs the only way to do that? I mean, I don't, I, I feel like these tariffs are going to blow up in the agricultural sector's face and um, and we're not going to be that much farther ahead on the intellectual property issues. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I think the intellectual property, I think it is pretty effective. Now, this is what happens. You know, virtually everything you read in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, you know, NPR, whatever news media yeah. is wrong. This trade war stuff is going to stop trade. It's going to cause a recession. Tariffs just shift the composition of trade. So if we put a tariff against steel or, you know, certain intellectual property-based products coming in, our balance of trade is not likely to change. Trade will flow around. It will change the composition of trade. It can be effective. The the overall strategy, uh, if if I were king and would help hope the Trump administration gets there, <laughs> would be to have a comprehensive strategy on uh, tariffs, to fix cheating and to design your your trade and production composition uh, to optimize that. Exchange rate management to neutralize other countries' undervaluation, which causes mm-hmm. trade imbalances. When the other countries have weak currencies, we have a trade deficit with them because everything they sell us is too cheap and everything we sell them is too expensive. Yeah. And lastly, an industrial policy, which... Uh, we already have in, you know, tax cuts for certain places or different programs and the like, but we don't coordinate it. China coordinates it. Germany coordinates it. So we need an ag and an industrial policy to support the type of industries we want. That's the full boat. So with tariffs, we think it's got to be a part of it. We think we've got to get through this. We think the administration needs to bring the full force of the government to protect our farmers and ranchers, but can't back down, because that's part of the whole package for us to have an economy in 20 years. Well, okay, so um, I, I, I noticed that quite a lot of Republicans uh, suggest that they're kind of alarmed about the potential consequences for American agriculture if these tariffs go forward. Um, why are they concerned, but you're not? I mean, wh- why don't you see the same thing that they see, or why don't they see the same thing that you see? You would, I would think they'd be on the same page with you, I guess is my point. Well, yeah, first, the the... You know the the far the the GOP and some of the Democrats have said trade's going to save us. They're going to we're going to pass all these trade agreements, NAFTA, chorus, the Korea trade agreement, mm-hmm. this and that. We have more trade agreements than we have ever had in world history in U.S. history. And farmers were doing horribly, including my father in Iowa, mm-hmm. uh, before these actions. So that didn't work, right? Trade saving agriculture did not work. We ended up in a very bad place. Mm. Um, number one. Number two, the domestic programs that we used to have before the 1996 Farm Bill worked pretty well, but the WTO membership forced us not to have those farm programs because they violated new international trade law. The WTO is a huge problem for us to get mm-hmm. a policy to fix agriculture and get them a basic, you know, kind of a price uh, that they used to have before they were failing. Uh, with this, I do share, and I mentioned before, I share concerns that this short-term noise won't resolve based upon global supply and demand fundamentals, mm. which they often do. And 
that the, Trump did order the USDA secretary to use expansive authority to protect farmers and ranchers. Right. We want them to do that, but it's it's we don't know what they're planning to do. Oh but, yeah, because uh, that was going to be my question. Like, what you know, yeah. is this going to be separate and outside of the farm bill, or is it going to be negotiated into the farm bill as something that will support prices or otherwise, uh, you know, extend some relief to the sectors that are most affected by uh, retaliatory tariffs? Um, you know, such as I mean, not that I think the soybean uh, industry has a lot of. <laughs> it's going to suffer too, too much. But I, I do know that the that, that the smaller guys uh, producing uh, beef and pork who rely heavily on those commodity prices and and um, and those those feedstocks are are definitely wetting their pants um, in many cases over these these proposed tariffs. I mean, I I I don't I, I can't imagine what the Trump administration or even Sonny Purdue do you have you have any sense of what he's thinking about this or is that just still well, a blank yeah, slate the, at the, the moment? USDA. Sonny Purdue, he's sort of the old style, you know, GOP. And look, I, I've got plenty of blame to go around for Democrats and Republicans because <laughs> Clinton, Bush, and Obama, you mm-hmm. know, screwed us up with this trade, you know, naive free trade. Free trade doesn't exist. It's like a pink unicorn. It's fun to talk about, but you never see one. Huh. And uh, that's an interesting so, statement, Michael. That's a very strong statement because you're saying so you favor a kind of protectionist model. Is that what you're saying? Look, the reason that we are the biggest net importer in the world and absorb other industrial countries' overcapacity is because we're naive free traders. They talk free trade. They don't practice it. They have a scenario of exchange rate management to keep their currencies low. Germany, Korea, Japan, Taiwan, China. They have industrial policy. Uh, Korea supposedly has free trade agreement with us. Try finding a Ford or a Chevy on their streets. They're closer to Japan. Try to find a Honda or a Toyota in Seoul. They just don't do that. They were Korea first before we were America first. They're all protectionist, mercantilist countries protecting their jobs and their industries, and they should, and so should we. Free trade doesn't work. It doesn't exist. Hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm digesting that. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds, or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. Would I be correct in assuming that you also do not favor the kinds of, for instance, regulations that have protected, say, Canadian dairy farmers, you know, from overproduction and uh, failing prices? Um, would that also come under the same, rub- you know, rubric of of uh, protectionism? Like, I know it's a, com- a different aspect, but still, like, don't we need to have those kinds of protections as well? Yeah. So with. 
Canada, for for us, they they should have that's that's their industrial policy applied to agriculture right. to keep Canadian farmers from going uh, broke. They should have the right to do it, and trade agreements shouldn't uh, prevent them from doing it. But we should not pretend that um, you know just dropping tariffs is going to fix us because some of those Canadian programs have bleed over or spillover effects into our market. We've dismantled. Uh, um, our programs, the effective parts for our uh, dairy producers, mm-hmm. and uh, you know th- th- these trade deals are sort of an in- international libertarian deregulation agenda where nobody can do what they used to do to protect their industries. We I should see. just get better at the right way that fits our country to uh, assist our industries in being successful and to keep the impover uh, to to reverse the impoverishing of rural communities that are turning into, you know, places where food stamps and meth labs and the like. It's right. a new ghetto. So uh, so what are those it. what is that right way? What what is the right way? If it isn't if it isn't extending trade around the world, you know, globalization, then um, you're saying that it's really more about protecting or re regulating our, our own markets? What what would work, do you think, to fix the rural economies of this country? Yeah, well, the big thing, uh, the big thing that we should do is fix our exchange rate. The dollar is overvalued because it used to be China and Japan and other countries' central banks bought dollars very heavily, sold their own currencies, so it drove their currencies low, drove the dollar high, mm-hmm. making everything farmers and ranchers and manufacturers sell too expensive on global markets and making all the imports too cheap. Uh-huh courtesy of their central banks. Nobody's talking about exchange rates, but you'll see something in the next couple of weeks. Trump did talk about China currency manipulation. He sort of dropped it. They yeah. should get back onto it. But the fact is, the dollar is about 20% overvalued, and we need to slowly move the dollar down to a trade-balancing equilibrium price that would balance our $500 billion trade deficit of 2017 within two years, and you would see much more massive ag sales from our markets including soybeans and pork and beef, than you've ever seen. Exchange rates are the big way to go, and then to talk about a domestic policy strategy. But then I read that currency manipulation, which was a big thing a few years ago from the Chinese, they have, they've stopped doing that, apparently. And that's no longer evident. I mean, from what I've read, that's not really a factor at this point. Uh, yeah, it's largely ebbed, and that's right. And the thing is, we cannot exa- exonerate private capital. So... Mm. Private capital is coming in from foreign countries and weaponizing our dollar. In other words, there's excessive, massive inflows of private capital coming in, buying dollar assets, driving our exchange rate or our dollar price uh, too high. There's various reasons for interest rates. We're a safe haven for parking wealth. We're world's reserve currency, things like that. But our interest is, so when that happens, anyone who's selling dollar assets sells them higher, like Wall Street or Treasury bonds, but all goods and services are too expensive on global markets. Uh So Germany and China grew off of low-priced currency. We are stagnating with a high-priced currency. And exchange rates in the intellectual laboratory or textbooks are always supposed to be at or near their trade-balancing price. Right. We are far above it, so we want to reconnect the dollar with a trade-balancing dollar price. That seems very reasonable. I mean, not that I understand really a single thing you just said. No. <laughs> well, I'm really, just that's why the Trump tariffs are good for the composition of trade, except for you know the farm risk, which I talked about 
doing, but yeah. the trade people don't get the fact that exchange rates are the big kahuna here. Right, right. Well, I can see my, yeah. it, it does make sense for me to me that that would be sort of the, the, the elephant in the room that no one is talking about. Um, and so that would be, but that would require some sort of regulation on Wall Street. And is, is that what you're saying? Is that what, well, the direction the way, you're what pointing in? Well, what we favor, and if, you know, we've got a couple studies on our website. We, mm-hmm. we favor uh, something called capital flow control, something that controls mm-hmm. the flow of capital into your country, mm-hmm. um, which is putting a small variable rate charge on incoming capital to moderate it. It's like a peak load charge. Say you've got too much traffic on New York City streets at rush hour. You put yeah. a peak load for cars coming in to... Not to stop cars, but to moderate it, to pull them, the volume of them back. Or right. when you've got a summer day, a hot summer day, and too many air conditioners are going, you've got a peak load charge on electricity to right. keep people from consuming too much. Not to stop electricity, you go back to the dark ages, just moderate it. Sure. And uh, you do that when there's a peak load or too much excessive demand for the dollar driving it up so our whole economy is non-competitive. You start with something like a half a percent mm-hmm. on incoming flows and the like, and you move it up or down accordingly. We'd like, uh, uh, so we've actually are preparing some legislation we think is going to be introduced in the next month. We're hoping the administration will, you know, be supportive or at least not try to block it, but uh, just to moderate the excessive foreign flows coming in that bid the dollar too high mm-hmm. and make soybeans 20% too expensive on world markets, mm-hmm. even at their current price, just because of the dollar price. But then uh, if the if the price of soybeans comes down, for example, then, I mean, I don't follow what uh, what soybeans cost in the in the world exchanges or in the or even on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. But it seems to me if those prices come down, then those farmers, not that I feel a lot of sympathy for mega ag, but... Um, those farmers take a big into a big economic hit there, don't they? No, if you have a you know we have, if you have ten dollars soybeans, ten dollars a bushel. Yeah, and you're a foreign buyer. When you're a foreign buyer, you're buying foreign. The first question you ask isn't what is the cost of the item. You first question is what's the exchange rate. I see. Then you go to the cost in the domestic you know currency from where you're buying. Uh huh. So if we have ten dollars beans uh, and you have the dollar devalue, let's say by let's say twenty percent. That's two bucks. You just you just made the beans the equivalent of eight dollars beans cheaper. for foreign buyers, even though the, 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 the farmer still gets you know ten bucks here. Uh huh. Okay. All right. That seems reasonable. Um. Uh. I. You know. I. I, I am literally such a. F- you know, so ignorant about how economics works that it's it's amazing I can even come up with the outline for this show. But I really did want to get some expert opinions on this stuff because, you know, everything you read in the papers um, and even in the ag journals, which I follow. I mean, I read Drover's Daily. I read Meeting Place. I mean, I pay attention to this stuff. And, um, for example, uh, what's his name? Chip Flory or something who writes for... for uh, not AgriPulse, but one of the other, you know, for Drovers, and he writes for the Farm Journal, um, he said that he's very worried about these tariffs and how they're going to, you know, affect, um, you know, people in the meat sector for certain. And then I was wondering, you know, so, and you're saying that's not necessarily going to happen. And of course, lower lower inputs for their cattle and pork would be very welcome, I've no doubt, because they, obviously, they have to compete with ethanol for those very same products, Right. So that has an impact on those prices as well. Right. To the extent we're a net importer, you know, with hogs and cattle, that's our big problem is letting in too many imports. To the extent we're a massive net exporter in proportion to our production, which is in the row crops, that is, you know, the worry. And I, I share the worry. I, I think we may see that it's just noise 
because you, you get the markets going, but you've got global demand and global supply. Yeah. And you've got a fungible commodity with all those suppliers dumping into it, and as people demand it. And the mere fact that it shifts, that it may shift around if China changes or somebody else does, yeah. does not change the fact there's global uh, supply. There's people that want it. So you're shifting, you're, you're diverting trade, but you're not, necess- you're not necessarily changing the fundamentals of the market. Right. That's certainly the true with tariffs in, in many other cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, you know, we don't know. Markets are not rational. They're irrational. Yeah. The stock markets have shown that there's noise that they come back based on earnings. The ag market should and often do. Whether they will, uh, I don't know. Yeah. I, th- I mean, it's very scary. And in our last minute here, because I know you have to go, what are your hopes for NAFTA? Because, again, uh, you know, many farmers are terribly alarmed that they're going to miss out on their big trading partners, Mexico and Canada, and that we won't have the sa- they will, will not have the same markets open to them. And um, that seems to be a very legitimate concern. <clears throat> How do you respond to that? Sure. We're not a big net exporter to Canada, so it doesn't matter that much. We are more to Mexico and uh what, ha- what tends to happen is whatever the U.S. price is, everyone else, other countries, undercut it by a certain margin. So yeah. I don't think it'll have much of an issue. We are very close for transportation purposes. So if they want to try shipping from Ukraine, good luck with that. Mm-hmm. Um, NAFTA's kind of been a disaster, but not necessarily for agriculture, although it has for beef and for fruits and uh, vegetables. Yeah. So it's differential impact. I, I think, frankly, farmers are going to be fine from NAFTA. Uh, I think the president's going to do something that doesn't doesn't harm them, unlike the you know the China potential. But I can't say that for sure. But I do like where Trump is going generally. Interesting. You you might be one of the few people in the world, Michael, that shares that feeling. <laughs> but clearly, you speak from a position of education that most of the rest of us do not possess. Um, I know you need to go now, so I will thank you so much. Um, if people want to learn more about what you're doing over there at the um, Corporation Coalition for a Prosperous America. Where can they find that information? Prosperousamerica.org. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much, Michael, for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Katie. Yep. We'll talk again, I hope. Bye-bye. All right. Great. (laughs) Take care. Thank you. And thanks to my sponsor, Wisconsin Cheese. Um, I appreciate their uh, support of this radio station, and thanks to my listeners, as always, for listening, and, of course, to the incredible Dave... I'm going to get that one of these days. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.